Welcome back, everyone, to the Poplar Tapes. Today, we've got a very uh, exciting episode for you that I think you um, will enjoy. Uh, my name is Keegan Irish, and uh, I'm here with Alex Bose. And um, today, we're going to be talking about a book called Carceral Capitalism by Jackie Wang, and in particular, the first um, essay from that book. Uh, entitled Racialized Accumulation by Dispossession in the Age of Finance Capital Notes on the Debt Economy. So, uh, Alex, this was your pick. Uh, you suggested that we read this, and um, I found it to be a really fascinating read and uh, helped kind of elucidate the way that contemporary finance capitalism works. But do you just want to maybe lead into this conversation by discussing like how you heard about this book, what it is about it that interested you and why you suggested we talk about it on the podcast? Sure, sure. So I actually heard about this book through a professor at uh, the University of Sherbrooke and he sent me a link to the book launch of Carceral Capitalism in its French translation edition and Jackie Wang led the book launch and uh, there was a discussion period afterwards Uh, there was a panel and the event itself was uh, really moving and um, uh, stirring. So I feel like the event inspired me a lot to kind of look into the book. And uh, uh, I'll, I'll just talk a bit about, I guess, the, the book launch itself. Because when I attended, um, Jackie Wayne kind of opened up by reading part of the uh, conclusion. And then the, uh, the, the panel, one of the members uh, had written the preface and the other member had uh, written the uh, postface. And then the translator was also present. And uh, Jack- yeah, Jackie opened up with a reading and then we kind of just went into the discussion period and I mean, it, this this was an event that was uh, full of people. There were ton- there were tons of people in this uh, this uh, at this event, and there were organizations um, more steered towards prison abolition, for example. So it was a very politically engaged event, and throughout the night, uh, there were multiple people that kind of went up to the microphone to ask these elaborate questions to Jackie Wang. And some of them had come from some more brutal backgrounds. So, like, one one person that actually came up uh, had moved to North America during the Vietnam War, uh, and she was seeking uh, a better and freer life, uh, completely was convinced by the rhetoric or the mythology that draws people to North America. And she had left her children behind in Vietnam to build up her life here so that she could bring her children to a free world. And then she learned 
she ended up in Quebec and she mastered the French language only to learn that the war was driven by imperialism and that she, you know, was uh, completely oppressed. And uh, she, she thanked Jackie Wang for writing the book. And uh, a French woman uh, came up and she spoke about what's happening in France right now with uh, the Macron government, who over the last uh, several years, I, I guess like, yeah, three or four years now, has been neoliberalizing France and slowly eroding the social protections that have been set up and that have made France a very more socially oriented country compared to places like North America, places in North America, uh, which are far more in, uh, individualist. And, uh, and she had been, you know, talking about this, um, uh, you know, how, uh, yeah, about how this, how, how neoliberalism and capitalism are destroying, you know, the, uh, the French nation. So I, I guess, I guess it just felt like there were, there, you know, there's this kind of uh, consciousness, growing consciousness and connectivity about the experience under capitalism. And that, that connectivity was a huge inspiration for me to look more into this book because I feel like the, the times that we're living in are so fractured and fragmented and finding those languages of connectivity are extremely valuable and important to bring us together to fight the, you know, the powers that be. (laughs) Totally, totally. And um, just to tack on the end there, like, I really enjoyed reading this text. It is uh, pretty dense, but there's, it's just so like chock full of great explosive insights and like helpful analytic frameworks. And so um, if I could just point out that as we were reading this text over the past week, um, it's at the same time what's been uh, going on here in uh, Canada is that the RCMP have been enforcing a court injunction which uh, the Supreme Court of Canada has upheld to basically expropriate the land of the Wet'suwet'en people, which is um, unceded indigenous land. And they're doing this in order to expand an existing pipeline system. And so just the force that's being deployed and the kind of horrifying practices that um, the settler Canadian state is uh, yeah, deploying in order to um, kind of carry out the goals of, of capital. Uh, I just saw so many resonances between what we were reading and what was going on there. And it really helped me gain like understanding of why the Canadian state is doing what it's doing and what it is hoping to accomplish, which in a way, like if you just kind of read the news in a, in a naive way, it seems very absurd. And the kind of justifications that they give um, don't really make a lot of sense. Right. Um, so reading this it just like really helped make some of those connections for me so we are as well as we work through this after we work through this essay and probably as um, we're going to be discussing those 
contemporary events as well and um, hopefully help bring some like measure of understanding there and uh, as well argue for uh, is strongly in favor of solidarity with the wet sweat and people in their struggle against the kind of just overwhelmingly powerful uh, forces of capital. So let's uh, just jump into our discussion of the essay here. And we're going to try and like walk through the main argument and just discuss things that kind of come up as we do that. There's going to be a bunch of kind of terms that we need to uh, define along the way. And hopefully this will give you guys uh, who are listening uh, just some helpful ways about thinking about contemporary finance capitalism and thinking about the way in which it really works, you know. So, yeah, so Jackie Wang starts out the essay talking about um, racial capitalism from Cedric Johnson or sorry, Cedric Robinson's definition. And she talks about the way that like racism and racial ideas pre-existed capitalism, but they were useful for the in the development of capitalism and they have been reinforced, multiplied uh, through capitalism, given that they help it to operate. And so then she's interested in saying how exactly um, they help capitalism to operate and why capitalism benefits so much from uh, existing racist sentiment, racist uh, forms of social organization. So in order to make that case, she goes back um, to think about the way in which capitalism emerged and how it exists and operates. And so she kind of starts that discussion with um, a or a look at this idea of primitive accumulation, um, which is sort of a classic uh, Marxist idea, right, that comes straight from capital. Uh, so maybe we can just jump in, explain what uh, primitive accumulation is and uh, why that's important for her argument. So uh, do you want to make, make some points about that and then I can kind of follow up? Yeah, yeah, sure. Primitive accumulation, according to Marx, is a kind of process that happens at the advent of capitalism. And it's a process that uh, leads to the creation of a labor market and uh, a system of uh, private property. And it, it uh, occurs through an extremely violent uh, process as well of dispossession uh, of land, but uh, also the, the violent conversion of a population or populace into the figure of or the position of a worker for for capitalists, and uh, and one of the things that he brings up is uh, you know the the creation of the proletariat. And if you want to tack something on there, yeah, totally. So. Um Primitive accumulation is the, for Marx, the way in which, um, at the, yeah, as Alex was saying, at the advent of capitalism, capitalists were able to accumulate the wealth and the land necessary to um, consolidate their ownership and subject uh, the kind of mass population to proletarianization um, and generate a workforce for the emerging industrial factories. So he uses the example of the in the transformation of the English peasantry into an industrialized workforce. And so if you're an English peasant prior to industrialization, you um, lived on land that uh, and you farmed land on the one hand that was owned by a lord, but you also had land that 
um, existed in the commons that you could use to um, farm for yourself. You would live in this kind of subsistence way on the land. And as lords changed, peasants remained in place, right? So a new lord would come along, he would take over the land, and the peasants were sort of tied to the land in a very formal way. And what this also meant is that there was a kind of subsistence existence going on uh, for uh, the English peasantry at that time. But uh, And so there would be no real motivation for them to st- – start to work in things like factories and warehouses because like they had what they needed in their own communities and they wouldn't want to leave those communities in order to uh, go work in these like horrific conditions. So what the early capitalists and kind of enterprising um, emerging bourgeois had to do was create these things called enclosure acts by which they transformed legally the uh, common land that the peasants lived off into their own private property. And then they would expel the peasants and create a landless and uh, homeless class of people who needed to sell their labor in order to get wages to get the goods that they needed to survive, namely housing and uh, foodstuffs, etc. Right? So it was this violent process of land privatization that created this transient industrialized workforce in the first place who were needed to actually run the uh, new factories and so on. That would be what we've just kind of outlined there would be a description of the classic Marxist idea of primitive accumulation, right? Um, So Jackie Wang kind of outlines this, but she says, you know, contemporary historians have this beef with Marx where they're like, well, um, you know, actually like slavery and uh, some of these other systems like pre-existed capitalism. And so this wasn't the, and, uh, and yet their labor was necessary for the launch of capitalism. You know, the cotton um, that was actually used in the uh, like linen factories and so on that existed in England, those were produced by slaves. So how do you explain this? Um, and your, your primitive accumulation story doesn't really um, explain this process, right? There's a kind of desire to prove Mark Mark's wrong on this point. But uh, Jackie Wang says, well, okay, that's that's fine. You know, it's not that these arguments are wrong, but we could actually go back in history and see the way in which like the progression of Marxist theory has dealt with these kind of problems. And so she specifically zeroes in on Rosa Luxemburg. Um, and so in 1913, Rosa Luxemburg wrote about the way uh, the problems with the primitive accumulation story. And she argued to transform this idea of uh, primitive accumulation from something that happened kind of as an event prior to the advent of capitalism that just kickstarted the system to an ongoing component of the um, capitalist order, which she calls expropriation. And this idea also helps to explain the way in which capitalism uh, has to expand and uh, in the, the way in which it produces imperialist and colonialist practices in um, other uh, other geographic areas around the globe. So uh, how does that argument actually work? Let's just move through that really quickly, right? So Luxembourg points out that capitalism's productive capacity can will expand faster than the worker's capacity to consume products. So uh, capitalism can't realize its its surplus value only within the system of uh, owner and laborer because there will be these crises of overproduction um, where the rate of profit will begin to fall. And so what the capitalists need to do 
is to uh, realize their surplus profit by incorporating third parties uh, into the system in order to temporarily resolve the antagonism between the expansion of the productive forces and the restrictions on the capacity of consumption, right? So they developed this parasitic relationship to um, non-capitalist spheres and to uh, other kinds of social orders where they have to adopt the, or not only adopt, but sort of uh, remove and then integrate the labor power from those systems, right? Yeah, yeah. And a kind of contemporary illustration of this would be, for example, the international networks of uh, trade and uh, industry that exist, I guess. So when you think of the way that the fashion industry uh, depends on outsourced labor in Bangladesh, where people are paid uh, extremely uh, poorly, you know, like pennies for uh, to, cre- to produce jackets um, that will be sold uh, at, uh, you know, a rate that's like 2000% or like 2000 times more the, the cost of production. Uh, you can see this, uh, this logic where... Luxembourg is pointing out that, you know, the development of uh, capitalism was not linear at all, but depends on or is buttressed by all of these different systems that are set up. Yeah. And so she says that, like, you know, the kind of way we usually understand capitalism is like the liberal contract theory. Right. It's like, oh, I contract with uh, with an employer to sell my labor to them. And then in turn, they pay me a wage. Um, and so it's agreed through these like legal contracts, right? But she points out that that system of like liberal contract theory only prevails in the imperial core, while these hybrid forms of capitalist and non-capitalist social formations um, emerge in the colonies, right? So this is a really kind of fascinating point where it's like in order to – generate the resources and the labor power necessary to continue the productive forces of capitalism. It has to kind of scour the globe and look for all the other places where labor power um, exists in different kinds of social formations, all the places where resources are being held in different kinds of uh, um, geographical environments, different kinds of social formations, and it needs to extract those um, resources and those um uh, forms of labor power and then integrate them back into the core capitalist system. And this is, I, I just think this is a fascinating point um, and a really kind of interesting way to think through capitalism as expansive and think through like why capitalism is constantly engaged in these like adventurous foreign military campaigns, you know? Like there's the kind of classic point like that we hear for from you know for pretty much anyone who like opposes the Iraq war for example you know they might say like oh war is a racket they might say we're in the middle east only for oil and it's like okay yeah those are explanations and kind of like theories about what's happening but they don't really tie together like the motivation um and the structure of the system itself. And I think that's what where Luxembourg steps in with this theoretical framework and could really help us like get that. Like, okay, we're in the Middle East for oil, but why do we need the Middle East 
oil, you know, like why does that is why is that something that makes it worth it to have these large expenditures on like military budgets and so on and so forth? Like how does that make sense? And it's like, well, when these um, resources and this labor power is integrated into other kinds of um, social formations, other kinds of like uh, labor productive capacity, uh, capitalism needs to integrate that in order to realize its own surplus value through the overproduction. It needs to generate these new markets and so on and so forth, right? Um, so I just think it's a really helpful way of thinking about capitalism as an expanding system and a system that necessarily expands insofar as as it can operate because it cannot realize its surplus value within the existing labor market itself yeah yeah so so i mean the the so what wang ends up doing uh is that she takes this extremely critical and uh, complexified model that Luxembourg has uh, created of this hybrid system of capitalism uh, or this like multi-system uh, or poly-system of capitalism. And she takes that analytical framework, turns it inwards to begin to study the kind of uh, what you could call the hybridity in a, a microcosmic sense, right? So she's focusing primarily on the United States, but she wants to see how expropriation and accumulation are not only being brought into the domestic sphere of the United States, but also is pointing out how these are certain kinds of developments within the sphere of the United States that have emerged uh, because this constant need to expand, uh, you know, capitalism's con constant need to expand is accelerating at such an intense rate. And this accumulation crisis that it's constantly trying to stave off, uh, or, uh, you know, this, uh, this surplus value uh, that it's constantly trying to... <laughs> Uh, gain and grow uh, is is beginning to like you know it's feeding and sucking its uh, citizens and uh, its workers dry as well yeah yeah and so Jackie Wang points out that capitalism is like an extremely dynamic system and so it has to constantly adapt to these changing these changing conditions and it turns these um, expropriative forces back on um, domestic populations. It doesn't only have to like latch on to uh, externalities in order to continue to realize the surplus value. So, and she points out that this is where like racial hierarchies within Western societies are so useful to capitalism because it has these ready-made collection of subjects who are already considered um, worthy of expropriation or unworthy of like real full participation in the society. And those become easy targets uh, to continue to expropriate resources and to generate profit and accumulation, right? Yeah, yeah. Those who aren't fully, those who should not be 
fully able to participate as proletarians even. Yeah, exactly. They're not fully considered they're not fully considered human. Like they're not considered as having the the right kind of rights to be able to engage in fair labor contracts according to like the liberal theory, which then is um becomes like closely tied with 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 whiteness, you know, or maybe that's a bit of an extrapolation, but that seems to be the what she's saying, that like liberalism is actually reserved. Liberalism in the sense of like contract theory of employment is actually reserved for white people, <laughs> which is a, a, a disturbing thought. But she kind of makes the case pretty forcefully, I think, you know, and so she points out that the use of debt as a, a becomes a, like an instrument or a tool for capitalism to expropriate these uh, and dispossess uh, these racialized subjects, you know? So she, they, the, in order for that process to operate fully, capitalism has to incorporate racialized subjects into the capitalist system as borrowers. And these like methods of dispossession or accumulation through uh, debt have, uh, have kind of developed over time, I guess, right? Like she's, she's, interested in the the ways in which race have been incorporated into capitalism and used by capitalism as capitalism has been evolving and changing in the United States and and so you know er, early so like one of the early examples that she gives I guess is the example of the sharecroppers Right. And how, you know, once uh, slaves in the United States had been, you know, so-called freed, uh, they were uh, many of them were landless, you know, just like these uh, these uh, peasants in, you know, uh, feudal society, you know, they're landless and they don't have their own capital. So they are translated or transformed violently into uh, a position of vulnerability, dependency, and exploitability uh, by by uh, capitalists. Uh, so that you know that creates a, a, a certain form, a certain a certain form of uh, indebtedness, indebtedness or dependency, or something like this. And so the argument that she's making is that these forms of racialization and these forms of like debt relationship and dependency on the basis of race are constantly being reimagined by capitalism in order to continue to generate these hierarchies from which value can be extracted, right? And so she, her point is that like this goes back all the way to the foundation of um, American and Canadian society. Uh, so she actually says, um, it, just if I can read a quick quote, which I think is really powerful. She actually says, racial slavery and settler colonialism provide the material and territorial foundation for U.S. and Canadian sovereignty. So just, uh, I think, a really helpful point, a really, like, kind of difficult thing to hear, I think, for a lot of people who might, who are settlers or who are integrated into um, settler society here in North America, in that it's like, we we do need to think through the fact that these nations that we live in 
have emerged as a result of this like genocidal racialized violence and the kind of like wealth that uh, people enjoy in these societies has that historical foundation. And in order to uphold it and continue that level of wealth, there need to be these ongoing processes of accumulation and expropriation, right? And the racial hierarchies that exist today and throughout history as they've kind of transformed over time um, have been ways for capital to continue that process of expropriation and um, accumulation. So I think like, especially as Canadians who kind of have this a lot of Canadians have this weird mentality where it's like they're constantly comparing themselves to America. Like they're kind of ready to admit that like American society is like corrupt and racist and so on. But then because they're kind of see themselves as like a little better, like there's a bit more of a concern for like human rights or something in the, in the mythology that they hold for Canada, which is really kind of weird but the peacekeepers yeah the, yeah canada is like this peacekeeping nation and stuff like they all they like give their own sovereignty a free pass or they believe that like oh our democracy is like more robust more legitimate uh so this kind of weird mentality that canadians have i feel like acts as even one more like barrier to actually coming to this realization that like these forms of sovereignty that exist in North America, like result from settler colonialism and uh, result from these processes of accumulation on the basis of like racism and genocide, you know? And it's like every time uh, we've been having these reports and so on in Canada lately, like we have the report on the missing and murdered indigenous women, we have the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And every time these things are carried out by the state, like, there's this huge backlash and this huge resistance from Canadians who just like refuse to admit that like this is their history, you know? They have this very like warped perception of their own history. And so it's like – but if you want to do serious economic historical analysis of what is going on in North America and like to understand contemporary events, you have to start here. You know, you have to start from this recognition um, and I think that Jackie Wang just kind of does that, like, in her essay. And so I'm maybe, like, dwelling on it longer than she does just because I'm thinking about the way in which, like, a lot of settlers have difficulty with this kind of with this kind of reasoning. Uh, I, I, I just want to add that one of the things that people have to also get through their head is that, you know, the idea of it being like the foundation, you know, we shouldn't be thinking about foundation as like a beginning and then it's like historically dis uh, distant, you know? I, I feel like foundation or f uh, is something that is ongoing, right? Like it's constantly being refounded, like because these uh, these operations are continual uh, continual they're per they're persisting into the present day and and um they're constantly upheld and maintained through these uh these relations of threat and violence and you know military domination you know the RCMP the police forces like these are all you know these are institutionalized forms of violence and power that are capable of 
uh, upholding uh, a structure that is constantly redefining its foundations. Uh, and, you know, these, so these, you know, these foundations are, yeah, they're, they're uh, constantly being, uh, I, I guess, you know, they were plant, uh, they were created, you know, the foundations of this architecture, and they're constantly being upgraded and uh, maintained by, uh, what systems there are. Yeah, it's like if you think about a foundation, like in a building, you know, you sink the foundation into the ground and then the building, which is like our state, let's say, and um, our society that's built on the on the top of that, like that economic foundation is, co- yeah, we're constantly renovating it and like changing things, like changing the, uh, the decor in our building, you know, maybe we're like, Oh, we got to like get that racist painting out of the lobby here. But at the same time, <laughs> like th- there's like all these skeletons like sunk into the foundation, you know? Right. And it's like, we actually have to like, you have to like get in and rip that up, you know? And, um, exam like, exhume the bodies that are at the foundation of like this 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 architecture this land is haunted by that past you know just like the 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 shining you know um uh the the the, what's the character's name uh jack you know is that his name or is he just jack is a dull boy in the typewriter but he's constantly Uh, like (laughs) <laughs> I think it's Jack. Yeah. Yeah. So he's he calls like, himself Johnny at one point, but anyway. right here's Johnny. Okay. Yeah. Which is it? Who knows? <laughs> but he's kind of driven mad by this, like exactly by this history, yeah. and in the same way, we're driven mad to like love Canada and uh, think that it's actually good, and that it's like a good like liberal utopia and so on, which is like not true at all. It's just not true. Yeah. So. Uh, but anyway, it could be a hard lesson to learn for people, and uh, it's not uh, always popular to say that kind of stuff. So, but I love the way Jackie Wang is like, yeah. I mean, obviously, she thinks her audience is just gonna recognize that this is like a key analytic step in the argument. Um, so that's great. <laughs> 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 Yeah, and she yeah. – uh, so she has a really interesting point uh, about how she's going to trace that, like, racist history where she says there are kind of, like, these two forms of racialization that are happening in relation to um, North American, like, Canadian and uh, United States sovereignty. Um, and w- one is native dispossession, which occurs through the expropriation of land and just the total disposability of the lives of those people, while black – dispossession is characterized by enslavement and uh, dispossession of their own body, you know? So their bodies are integrated into the uh, system of capital, but are dispossessed from them in a way that um, is kind of unique to black racialization. So there are these two racial logics that are um, at play there, right? Generally speaking, obviously it's not like a hard and fast rule, but I think she makes a good point about the way these logics of racialization operate. Uh, and we talked a little bit about like Jim Crow and the way in which these different these different forms of racialization have existed throughout history and the way that they're always developed and deployed and reinforced in order to aid the process of capital accumulation. But there's this other kind of element that's necessary, which is the racialization, which is actually like a moral logic rather than a purely um, economic argument. 
And so she, then she wants to talk about the way that that like moral form of racialization is necessary to contemporary kinds of economic racial hierarchies, right? It's a precondition. So even as like legal codifications of racial hierarchy um, are stripped away um, in, in terms of like Jim Crow law and segregation ending, you know, through like civil rights struggle and so on, like capital kind of regroups and then redeploys itself in order to make use of the existing moral um judgment that uh, white settler society has against racialized people in order to extract value from them in a different fashion. And this is where um, instruments of indebt uh, of indebtedness come in. This is where debt uh, comes in. And this is what is necessary to the functioning of like contemporary finance capital. Yeah. And like one of the one of the factors leading up to these new forms of debt that are developed uh, is, you know, this kind of retrospective maybe realization that, oh, well, it wasn't actually really fair uh, that uh, during mass suburbanization in America, all uh, like mostly white people had access to loans to purchase uh, property uh, that was uh, being, uh, you know, created in the suburbs. Uh, and a lot of the decisions to give uh, mortgages over to the white suburban class were judgments that were based on an act called redlining, I think, yeah. which was like uh, an act uh, or a process of kind of, you know, outlining or drawing out the limits of certain kind of like neighborhoods that are considered to be, you know, uh, risky, risky. There you go. Thank you. Risky. Right. And so those, you know, risky neighborhoods, uh, were viewed as, you know, risk at this point was viewed in a, in a negative sense. But, uh, then once, uh, once these new forms of, financial inclusion were created later on in the what was it uh in the 90s i think or like yeah yeah so 80s 90s uh yeah. this kind of thing yeah mm-hmm. and uh the new the new forms of uh indebtedness that were created were seeking to look at these you know risky enclaves or even just the concept of risk, and to think through how it could be something that would generate money or generate wealth. Yeah. Yeah, and so um, she talks about the way that there's this paradigm shift um, where, like, risk itself, where previously risk was sort of, like, excluded from loaning practices, but risk itself was actually transformed into a, a commodity that could be traded and used to um, extract value um, through, like, adjusting the different kinds of debt that would uh, be given out to, like, different classes of people Um along racial lines. So there's this move from like the quote-unquote unjust practice of uh, of redlining into the quote-unquote just practice of like risk-indexed lending. And so 
she talks about this as a move from financial exclusion to expropriation through financial inclusion. And this is really like where she gets into all the practices that uh, are deployed by like financial institutions that led up to the 2008 um, financial crisis. Um, and so there's actually a ton of stuff in this essay on that where she like goes into a lot of really fine-grained detail. And maybe I'm going to say that we don't have the space here to like go into that stuff. But if you're interested in thinking through like how the 2008 financial crisis like really came about, this is an excellent essay that just like, like lays that out really, really clearly. Um, so totally worth uh, reading it for yourself, I would say. Uh, if that's the sort of thing you're interested in. But uh, the long and the short of it is this, uh, there's this really like sinister quote that she pulls out that for, in in her argument, just kind of encapsulates this shift from um, like explicit forms of racial exclusion to this uh, financial inclusion, which nonetheless depends on existing moral logics of racialization and that, that is then encoded into risk and uh, creditworthiness. So she says that Thomas Perez, who was the assistant attorney general for the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division, said, quote, people with similar qualifications should be treated similarly. They should be judged by the content of their creditworthiness and not the color of their skin. So we're all reduced down to credit. Yeah, <laughs> logics of creditworthiness. And so uh, this is a very sinister, creepy quote in my view. Um, and obviously in Jackie's view as well, um, our friend Jackie. Uh, it's like, because it's referencing the, the, the content of your of, of your character, not the color of your skin, Martin Luther King quote, right? So it's just kind of like false, this like false move towards like uh, progress. Progressive civil inclusion. Rights. Yeah. <laughs> but in fact, like... It's bastardization of inclusion. You know? Yeah. And like, so just the fact that this guy was like self-consciously referencing that quote, but instead subbing in like creditworthiness for the content of your character, you know, it's like, oh, we can judge the content of your character based on this metric of like your financial history. And of course that is extremely like financial histories are extremely racialized. That's the whole argument that Jack, uh, that Wang has been making like throughout this paper. Right. So it's like saying that somehow this is like an objective measure that financial institutions can use to remove like human bias in lending practice, you know, is, uh, a, 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 an argument out of, out of time. It's an argument that hasn't can taken into consideration the history of like racialized, um, forms of expropriation that have been the entire, as we've been talking about, economic foundation of financial capital in the first place, right? So it's – and it also – in order for that argument to seem credible, it depends on the racist logic on the part of um, like white settler society that um, – 
black and brown people are less morally upright, that they're less likely to do the right thing and pay their debts, that they don't take responsibility for their own lives, right? Like it depends on all these assumptions in order for it to have meaning, in order for it to be a kind of moral logic um, that you can quantify at all. Yeah, it's a hyper-individualist, you know, neoliberal ontology. That's yeah. like, you know, uh, responsabilization of the individual. Um, they, it's, you know, it's it's their character that is the cause of their financial woes or something like this. Totally. Like, it's just like completely stripping away, you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it's violently uh, um, isolate. It's like taking individuals out of a far more complex, holistic world and just like isolating them in a container. Yeah, it's just like yeah, completely ignorant of systemic racism and, and structural racism and all these other things at play. <laughs> totally. And it's like yeah, to say that like these histories of um, like ex- exploitation and expropriation wouldn't affect the degree to which someone is like capable of generating capital and therefore like managing interest, you know, like it's just to ignore like all of this, all of this history of racialization is to ignore the fact that like these racial hierarchies exist and uh, have continued to like transform and develop and therefore to like unconsciously or I, you know, honestly, when you read a quote like that, it kind of feels like consciously reproduce those racial hierarchies for a new age and yet run this cover of like, we're just actually, we're like doing civil rights, you know, and uh, <laughs> it's like so uh, gross and uh, uh, manipulative, uh, you know. And I think Wang kind of puts it best. Maybe I can just like look uh, look through some of what she says here. Yeah, so she points out that the credit system itself is like legitimized by a moral framework that under, that shapes our understanding of debt. So whereas the creditor is like the one who's framed as benevolent, just like making judgments about the quality of people's character, while like debtors are like lazy and irresponsible. When we know, and what we're pointing out here is that there are profit incentives for the um, uh, for the creditors to uh, generate these really bad loans in order to extract enormous amounts of usurious interest from from subjects, right? Like they are incentivized to do that. They will get more money if they trap somebody into a bad loan and can continue to uh, exploit them and uh, generate uh, uh, accumulated capital, right? So like the whole moral logic is like based on, as Alex pointed out, this individualization and it, it completely exonerates the financial institutions which are exploiting people and have been exploiting people for you know, decades and decades going back to their foundation, right? Um, so it's this, uh, it's a completely inverted uh, and twisted moral logic, but it's necessary for, for these institutions to function. Yeah, there's this, uh, there's something that I read in the essay where it says something like, you know, predatory lending mechanisms dominate in situations of poverty and desperation. Yeah. Like, it's just like, it's it's so disturbing that um, people are incentivized to create these new forms of high, you know, quote unquote, high risk uh, lending mechanisms uh, that have higher interest rates for 
the borrowers and then they're supposed to kind of just speedily take as much money as in wealth as possible from these people and then dispose of them you know and like what what happens to them who fucking knows if they don't pay their debts like uh ultimately they can land in prison right yeah like yeah you can land in prison and that's another yeah and that that prison system is a whole pair you know a whole other level or uh you know, a whole other level of this uh, this building that we were talking about, this metaphor of the building. Totally. You know, you go even further down and then you're exploited in those ways, uh, drawn into other forms of debt through court-related fees, you know, f- fees of seeing uh, a lawyer, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And uh, the debt builds up if you can't pay that off. And then, you know, now we have fucking private prisons in the U.S. and shit, and, like, people are getting fucking... Uh, it's just nude labor camps, you know, it's just fucked. Like. It is. <laughs> and so I have a story about this actually. Um, so, uh, in my line of work, like I work with some marginalized folks and, um, there's this one guy who I was speaking to for a while and, uh, he lived on the street for 25 years and, uh, he's now off the street, but he, you know, he's older and like this kind of shit has like hardened him. And he told me a, 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 a very interesting story about the way that he used those, those, uh, what do you call them? Those like loan, those uh, cheap loans, the credit, uh, what's the name of those institutions? Uh, like you'll uh, see them every money, money. Marks, <laughs> cash money, 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 like all those places. What do you call those places? Predatory loan, uh, <laughs> Marth, yeah. Yeah, so he had to use Cash Money or Money Mart or one of these, one of these kind of like predatory loan institutions, in order to like, as his only uh, kind of banking for the entire time that it was on that he was on the street, because he um, Cash Advance Payday Loan. Yeah, Payday Loans. That's what it is. Yeah, he had to use a a Payday Loan institution for the entire time that he was uh, living on the street. And um, the reason being that he didn't have an address, like he didn't have proper identification, like he couldn't get a bank account, you know. And so he's constantly being subjected to this kind of usurious interest every time he like has a job and every time he gets money. So it's like harder and harder for him to get out of that cycle of homelessness. And the only thing that eventually broke it for him in the sense of like getting off the street was actually a social housing program. So it wasn't like he got out just through like working hard and the accumulation of capital or whatever. Like he was permanently trapped in that situation into homelessness and, um, uh, and, and, and into, uh, this relationship with these, with these predatory institutions. Right. And for 25 years, like, and this guy worked construction, like, it's not like he was not, uh, working, wasn't, wasn't a quote unquote contributing member of society. Yeah. Like here's somebody who like worked hard and like was employed and nonetheless was in this kind of situation. So the point being that like these kind of debt mechanisms can force people into like permanent impoverishment into permanent homelessness and then just like continue to suck them dry to like such extreme degrees. Right. Um, and this is what these debt mechanisms can actually do. And then are the, they're allowed to do that because of the kind of moral perception that society has that, oh, that person needs to like work hard, needs to pull themselves up by the bootstraps and like, you know, uh, they shouldn't be so personally irresponsible. And it's like that is just so sick, you know. That's such a sick way of like thinking about people and treating yeah, them. Yeah, it's disgusting. Yeah. 
So there's one thing you can kind of take away from this conversation. It's like try and change that that thinking in yourself. You know, if you have that that kind of logic within you that it's like, oh, that person, like maybe they shouldn't have been so irresponsible. Their personal choices have led them to this place or whatever. Like just go after that notion and attack that. And remember that these institutions are incentivized, that they make more money when they treat people in these ways. It also makes you wonder, you know, about how um... – you know, how the gap between rich and poor is constantly growing, you know, the like the, the erosion of the middle class or uh, and uh, and uh, job scarcity, like all of these are like conditions that are almost like trying to push us into these situations, mm-hmm. you know, so that we can like be. Uh, one by one kind of bled dry and then uh, caught in expropriated of everything and then uh you know eventually like tossed into a fucking prison you know or something yeah. like this like it's like so incredibly incredibly morbid and grim you know but uh but it's yeah. it's extremely important to know about ex- because expropriated you know, of everything yeah so many of us can be uh, i mean it's just because all of these things are happening and it requires uh, time and uh, unfortunately, like money to be able to learn about these things as somebody who's never in a situation like that, and you know to to uh, do the research, et cetera, et cetera. But it brings to uh, brings into our consciousness a, a a form of domination that is central to the workings of capitalism and the capitalist finance the finance capitalism you know the system under which we are all uh, uh made subjects mm-hmm. yeah absolutely so okay i just think that this if i can read this last quote from jackie wang that i just think it's like on a lot of these points is like so such a kind of mic drop like right at the end of the essay Okay, she says, uh, the racist practice of targeting black people as well as Native Americans, Latinxes, and immigrants for predatory loans, uh, sorry, for predatory loan products is coded in a colorblind discourse of, quote, risk. The subprime crisis showed us that in the U.S., creditworthiness itself is racialized as there was Um, an a priori association of blackness with risk. Not only does the credit system reinforce racial inequality, but money lending itself is a racializing process for it marks certain subjects as suitable for expropriation. The debt economy's moral edifice will hold so long as the population is fractured into deserving and undeserving borrowers. And the most predatory credit instruments are reserved for the most vulnerable segments of the population. However, as capitalism generally tends towards expansion, it is only a matter of time before these practices are generalized as growth opportunities shrink. Indeed, in many areas of lending, we are already witnessing the generalization of these predatory practices. Given the expropriation and racist nature of the credit system, it is credit unworthiness and not credit worthiness that is the ethical position to occupy. A refusal to pay is a refusal to validate an illegitimate system propped up by predation. 
So that's how she ends the essay, and I just think it's fantastic. And it's a, a it's a very powerful indictment of the credit system, which claims to be this kind of race-blind and, uh, like, just alternative to, like, previous forms of racialized capitalism. And her whole point is it is not that. Rather, it is a continuation of racialized capitalism. It's a continuation of these hierarchies in our society, and um, it is a... A, a, just another way of generating uh, capital, uh, accumulating capital, and expropriating from the poor and destitute, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's shift gears a little bit, and do you want to talk about what's going on in Wet'suwet'en and some of the connections between what we've just discussed and like what we see going on actively today? And so we've already talked about the way that like these processes of, of expropriation need to uh, continue, need to be reproduced all the time um, in order to uphold the existing form of capitalism and in order to realize the surplus value that is generated in the kind of uh, overproduction of goods. And so uh, what do you think? You want to talk about that? Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. What's happening in you can clearly see this idea of uh, expropriation that was outlined in the beginning of the uh, the the episode, where you know um, the Wet'suwet'en, you know they're they're living on their land uh, and off their land, and there are forms of uh, like skills and. Uh, knowledge systems embedded in the way that you know that way of being that way of life that way of living in uh, on the land and off of the land that that have been stripped from a lot of uh, people like us who have been living all our lives in uh, more uh, you know cities or suburbs or uh, you know western models of uh of civilized yeah social organization civilization and so you know this process of expropriating the land uh to expand the pipeline uh to gain and accumulate wealth for you know not all canadians it's just completely ridiculous yeah like you do own a share in this pipeline no like (laughs) what's Switzerland's not the only example like you have smaller you have like other minor examples of this you know with uh what what was in oka with like they were just trying to expand a golf course or something you know it's capitalism but it's like small scale or something (laughs) uh but like canada also has uh a lot uh it has uh mining industries in the u.s i think you know and those uh, mining industries, the, uh, the creation of them and the uh, continued maintenance of them displaced, uh, uh, I think, Navajo or, um, but uh, yeah, Navajo off their land, you know, and it's just and like... Same thing, same thing in Mexico as well. Canadian mining companies have been deeply involved in like Mexico and places in Latin America, you know, again, displacing indigenous people in order to like build strip mines and extract resources uh, on this kind of like terrifying scale, incredibly environmentally damaging obviously like you know just so spiritually bankrupt in the way that they are like willing to like target these people for um uh for violent death and like total expropriation you know it's like it's disgusting yeah yeah it's disgusting and so you know the the thought of um uh the destruction of uh the Wet'suwet'en territory uh poisoning it 
Uh, and like these are clear examples of this this ontological understanding uh, of indigenous people as uh, disposable by the government. You know, it doesn't matter like what Trudeau believes or says, like this is the ideology that is uh, pushing the pipeline through right now. Like the ideology says they're disposable and it's fucking doing it. And then, you know, there are of course people all over across Canada and internationally that are, uh, upset about this and uh, resisting uh, and trying to do whatever they can to uh, to, to uh, you know spread the word and wake people up or interrupt capitalism and this kind of thing. It's the same form of racialization that Jackie Wang talks about in uh, this essay, right? Where she says Native people are racialized in the sense that they will be dispossessed for their land and that they they themselves are disposable and will be subject to genocidal violence. Right. It's the exact same thing going on here. Um, and so that ideology, that racial hierarchy at the heart of um, the, what she calls the foundations of Canadian sovereignty, that hasn't gone away because like Trudeau wears a nice scarf once in a while and like says, I'm sorry for this stuff that we used to do in the past. It's like you're doing it today in the exact same way you've always done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And like, you know, what comes with an ability to live on the land and live off the land is a form of freedom, autonomy, and power, you know? And like, you know, uh, that, uh, to be stripped of that kind of knowledge and to be stripped of that kind of power throws you into these positions of exploitability and dependence, you know? That is what the Canadian state wants to do, and that's what the uh, corporations want to do, is to uh, force us into positions of dependence, right? I mean, interdependency is one thing. I think there can be good things to come out of interdependency, but this is not like an interdependency. I mean, it... It's not really an interdependent relationship at this point. You know, this no, is like pure no. dependence. Think about, you know, like, yeah. So think about what what's actually going mm-hmm. on, right? Like, the RCMP goes in, they arrest a bunch of people for uh, what nothing, like yeah. for no no crime, for standing on their own yeah. land and living there because they've always lived there. You know, they go and they put those people into prison. It doesn't matter if they're there for a long time, a short time, whatever. You come out of prison and then you're in one of these kind of situations where um, you're displaced. You need to sell your labor in order to survive. You need to be seeking out housing in a, in a brutal rental market. You're in all these debt situations. So all those people who are being arrested right now are precisely going to be put in the position of uh, the subject of finance capital, right? So like uh, it is a for it is a potent form of disempowerment and a potent form of genocidal violence against the forms of social organization that exist outside the scope of capital, right? We're talking about unceded territory. Like, I feel like that can't be stressed enough. Like, they actually do not have legal jurisdiction over this land, and that's why they target it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. From the perspective of the state. No, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. Uh, it's it's a perfect example of this uh, this hy- hybrid capitalism that was uh, discussed earlier. Exactly. You know, it's, it's exactly. Like, uh, absorbing uh, the externalities to capitalism, uh, and then bringing the bringing them into their horizon of domination. Yeah. Uh, uh, completely destroying and committing genocide here. You know, this is yeah. uh, straight up genocide. It is. Uh, destroying 
uh, the land, destroying the language, destroying the knowledge, destroying the way of living, of being. Yeah, it's another form of indebtedness. It's it's the municipal indebtedness is what Jackie Wang calls it, right? Where all of a sudden you have all these court fees that you're saddled with and you have to be able to generate this capital somehow and you can't do it. So you're cast into debt again, you know? Um, That's obviously part of it. And so I kind of teased this at the beginning, but I just want to come out with it clearly and say, so why is the Canadian state doing this? Right. And I think that Rosa Luxemburg answers that question for us when she says it's to temporarily resolve a crisis in overproduction, right? To temporarily resolve a crisis of accumulation. So there's a huge overproduction of oil in the tar sands, right? There is no market for it. Even, even the economists say this, even the economists of the oil companies say this, there's no market for this oil, you know, but they're committed to creating a market such that they can realize the surplus value that they already have and that they don't, um, they don't get into the situation of the falling rate of profit. So that is the motivation. It's a temporary solution to a problem which ultimately will recur over and over again and force them to expand elsewhere. So they can temporarily resolve that problem by subjecting these people to violence, by extracting value from these people, right, in order to um, get their goods into some kind of market. And like that, it's like, it's so nihilistic. It has no, there's no end to that, right? Because we know that's a temporary solution. And it, it's so obvious here where like, how much value can you honestly ex- extract from this small number of people on this like tract of, uh, of like land that hasn't been developed for capitalist purposes? Like, honestly, you know, it's, it's gotta be a very small amount and consider how much already is like, how much cost has already been sunk into this pipeline infrastructure in the first place. It's going to cost us 12.6, 12.8 billion now or something like this like that's what i heard recently they're trying to they're trying to make back that money just through raw violence through raw force and through these exploitative debt practices that they will that will snap up those people who they're subjecting to incarceration today those are literally corporate police yeah those are literally corporate police militarized going in and committing genocide in front of her fucking eyes right now yeah and we've talked about this on the on the podcast before like this that's canadian history that there could be no more like obvious representation of this where it's like canadian history is like a, uh, a collection of corporations who like loosely got together to form a state in order to uh, brutalize indigenous people using le- legal frameworks and like provide this kind of like space of uh, the liberal contract for those who are like already embedded into whiteness and who will become like laborers under the like existing modes of capitalist production, right? Like that's what Canada is at the end of the day. And here you see it just like in its stark, like naked brutality. And so all the rhetoric and um, the kind of smoke and mirrors and false consciousness around reconciliation, like we see that the lie is being given to that, you know? And like Trudeau's like, complete silence here his absence he's like engaged in this kind of some international like uh diplomatic mission right now in africa it's like it's so obvious that that is a way of just kind of hiding from your own crimes you know like it it really is like a sick and and, and twisted uh, uh uh social formation that would do something like this you know i think it it, it exposes like what Canada is in reality. But really, like, uh, the the solidarity, uh, the international solidarity, the solidarity across Canada, like, uh, it, it is a, it is something promising, you know? Like, 
It just, you know, this is this is part of a tradition of resistance that's been growing, especially since Idle No More. But like, you know, Idle No More, like started, you started to see more non-Indigenous people kind of get implicated in this, uh, this larger mechanism or this larger tradition of resistance, you know, and there are lots of things bringing people together right now. So, uh, you know, we've got to cling on to uh, some of the uh more hopeful elements of uh this as well yeah exactly and you see certain groups getting out there and like getting involved in direct action by like shutting down the circulation of capital when they're blocking trains they're blocking highways they're blocking the port in vancouver right um so solidarity with all of the people who are involved with that and um if anyone listening to this has the capacity to support those people whether like by putting their body on the line or um by like financially supporting those people we would like really encourage you to do that and those are things that like we ourselves are um looking into and trying to get involved with so um there are ways to fight back it's but and i think being aware of these analysis analyses rather of like how uh capitalism actually operates really helps you see what it would take to get involved because if you know why they're doing it like it it, it 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 can help you see what can damage that you know it's like if we get in the way of the circulation of capital of the accumulation of capital then it is going to look less and less worth it right and if all of a sudden this like sponta- there's this kind of spontaneous like acts of solidarity springing up around that like block capital in other places they're going to realize they have to retreat from that in order to recuperate that value that they're losing so just keep that stuff in mind you know about why this is happening it's happening for a very cold and nihilistic reason and engage with it on those terms and fight it on those terms however uh, you kind of can, however uh, you see the possibility. And so, yeah, just mad love and solidarity to everyone who's already involved in those projects. Yeah, mad fucking love, yeah. yeah. I think that that's a good note to end on. <laughs> okay, so let's just uh, wrap it up here real quick. So if you guys have like stuck with us this far and have listened to everything we've been saying, uh, we really, really appreciate you, and it means a lot to us um, that people kind of want to hear what we have to say on these subjects, and that uh, hopefully we can kind of um, share some of the education that we've gotten through like our own means, and uh, we continue to like read these texts that like maybe not everyone knows about and has access to, and like just open those up for people, and um, you know take things that are going on in the headlines and kind of like try and crack those open and think about how they operate in relation to uh, like capitalism on a larger scale. So if you find value in that. Um, and you kind of like what we're doing, we would really appreciate it if you would uh, maybe share the episodes of this podcast like with your friends uh, and uh, on social media and so on. We would appreciate it if you would like follow us on social media and engage with us. Like, let us know what you liked about this. If you think we're wrong about stuff or we're not placing enough emphasis on something, like, you know, bring that up too. And like, let's 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 have a conversation, you know? And so you could reach us at the Poplar Tapes on Twitter. Um, you could send us an email, uh, which is thepoplartapes at gmail.com. Anything else? Oh yeah, Instagram. We have an Instagram account now. So you can hit us up on Instagram. And if any of you are looking to donate, uh, you can go to the Unistaten website at unistaten.camp. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're definitely would like to amplify that as much as possible. 
And uh, maybe last thing here, I'll just give a huge like, thank you to uh, Daniel Bose and Jacob Irish for the work that they're going to put in uh, editing and doing post-production uh, on this project. Uh, we really appreciate that, and this wouldn't be able to happen without the work that uh, others are putting in behind the scenes. So, um, you know, love to our friends and homies and uh, to you as a listener. We really appreciate it. Okay, thanks a lot. <laughs>